0: you're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle for other resources more information about this sermon series or to connect with us visit our website www.trinityws.com grab your seats I'm going to pray for us as we dig into this together Father in heaven, we come to you now as we've heard your word. We ask now that you would give us your Holy Spirit to be present here among us, that we might also receive your word. And not just receive it, but to be changed by it, that we might more deeply and deeply believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, and the scriptures that reveal him. We pray this for your glory and our joy. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this week, the symbol, as I said, is right there in the middle. And uh, we could put it up on the screen as well. What do you think this symbol represents? It might be a little bit obvious. (laughs) This is that signpost. Why why do you think that we say this is the symbol for believe. Well, this symbol represents the Bible, okay? And we believe that the Bible is God's truth given to us. But as we begin today, I want to ask the question, is the Bible the only place where truth is found? And to answer that, I'd like to actually tell you a story, and it involves a cute puppy. I'm sure everybody loves starting stories like that. This is Pip. Okay? Pip, Pip is short for Pip, and yes, he's named after one of the hobbits, and yes, he's our dog. This is him three years ago when he was just a little, little guy. He's a big boy now, and Pip is generally also a good boy. He tends to do what he's told to do, uh, but there are times where he gets into some mischief, and one of those things that he likes to do is eat those little maple seeds, And what happens when he does that is that Pip poops. Okay, I'll just leave it at that. Pip gets bad stomach problems when he eats these maple seeds, and it's a mess. And in the middle of the night, at 3 o'clock in the morning often, he'll bark because he sleeps in the crate down in the basement. He'll bark, and that's our signal. This guy's having a stomach issue. (laughs) And that's the only time that he asks to to be let out of his crate in the middle of the night. So you know something's up. And a number of months ago, this was... Uh, happening regularly. Like within a week, it must have been three or four nights in a row, he's waking me up to take him outside. And I'm getting more and more tired. I'm getting angry, right? And it's three o'clock in the morning, and I'm sitting outside with my dog waiting for something terrible to happen, right? And, And he's just sitting there in the, in the yard staring at the bunnies that are jumping around and, you know, eating grass. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Just do something already. You know, I want to go back to bed. I was so angry. And, and one of the things that the Lord has taught me over the years is that when I'm angry, that's a, that's a, a, a flag to pay attention. And, and what I did in that moment, what he reminded me of in that moment was I need to go to him. Okay, I'm angry, frustrated, I want to go back to bed. Okay, Lord, what are you doing? What, what's up? Why, why are you putting me out here with this stupid dog and all this stuff that's going on? Why, what am I doing here? And it reminded me in that moment, the Lord brought to mind this other memory that I had of when my kids were little, when they were babies and infants. And I'd be up in the middle of the night with them. You know, my wife and I are trying to trade off duties in the middle of the night. And man, there were some nights where, same thing, I'm up multiple times uh, multiple days in a row, I'm tired, I'm like, I just got to go back to bed, Lord, let this be over, and I remembered in that moment with this dog, some of those moments, and how God had worked in those moments to give me some of the sweetest times of prayer, and fellowship with him, and, and just holding my baby, and, and spending time with them, and, and, and he reminded me of that, and I'm like, okay, fine, fine, Lord, okay, I'm here, what are, you, what are you trying to do now, okay? What, what's the moment that you're trying to reveal to me right now? And he just said, look up. I was like, okay. I look up and I saw something like this. And that's a rare view around Seattle, right? <laughs> we, have, we have cloud cover. We have light pollution. It's hard to even see that many stars on a, on a night. But that night, it was as clear as I've seen it. And I remembered as I looked up and I saw the stars I was reminded of how big God is how powerful God is, the fact that he built galaxies but also the fact that I'm small, (laughs) I'm not God, I didn't do any of those things, I'm sitting here on a little speck called planet earth and and I'm just a little human being And, and it struck me in that moment, I realized, you know, this is really annoying that I'm sitting here with my dog, but it's really not that big of a deal. And, and God gave me the strength to endure. And the point of the story is just to tell you that I saw the truth. I saw the truth. The Bible says, as we read, the heavens declare, declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And what it's saying is that God speaks to us through nature, in such a way as we can observe something about who He is, who, what, what His character is like, we can go out and we can see the truth about God, that He made all things, and, and, and how He ordered, wisely ordered, creation to work in the water cycle, and in you know the, the orbiting of planets, and in the seasons, and so many things that we recognize. We call this natural revelation. It is truth that God has shown to us in the natural world. And and even through things like those celestial bodies in the night sky. And it's amazing. But we wouldn't actually know the God who's revealing himself to us naturally unless he also revealed himself to us supernaturally. You see, though, all truth is is God's truth, we can only experience a fraction, a a, a portion of truth with with our natural senses, with what we can observe. The rest of what we can observe about God needs to be done by faith, with our supernatural senses, if you will. And we're going to dig into this much more deeply with the aim of building up our faith and coming to a place of believing So we have three points. God speaks to us through natural revelation. God speaks to us through supernatural revelation. And God speaks to us through Jesus Christ. So let's begin. God speaks to us through natural revelation. This is actually going to be found in a scripture we didn't read at the beginning. It's in Romans chapter 1 and beginning in verse 18. And if you don't have a Bible, as I mentioned last week, grab one of those in the pew back in front of you. Take it home with you. We'd love to give that to you as a gift Here's what it says. "'For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, or we, or people, are without excuse. So this is saying that we can either believe the truth or we can suppress the truth. Now what truth is it talking about? Verse 20 said that it's talking about the truth of God's existence, namely His invisible attributes, His eternal power and His divine nature. Okay, but how can we know that truth? Verse 20 said that it's been clearly perceived. How has it been clearly perceived? In the things that have been made since the creation of the world. And we can either believe this truth or we can suppress this truth. Believing this truth about God is embracing who he is. It's submitting ourselves to him. It's really, it's living for him, which can be summed up in the word worship. It's worshiping him. But suppressing it is burying it deep into the recesses of our hearts so we don't have to face it. So we can continue living as though God doesn't exist, as though he's not our creator, as though he doesn't have the wisdom or the authority to determine how our lives should be lived. And when we suppress the truth, this leads to what verse 18 called unrighteousness and ungodliness. It's, it's really just people not living in God's ways. Because what you believe about God determines how you choose to live. And what you suppress about God also determines how you live. And so it's said that His wrath is revealed against this unrighteousness and ungodliness. Now, you, you might have even, as, as I started reading that passage, some of you might have gotten triggered like, whoa, 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 why are we talking about the wrath of God already? This is kind of heavy. It's kind of ugly. We don't, we don't like thinking about God's anger and His wrath. And a lot of that is due to the fact that as human beings, we're just used to anger often being sinful, <laughs> anger often being unjust. And so we don't understand how God could be loving, as we talked about last week, but also angry. But we have to remember that God never sins, and so His anger is always just, it's always right, it's always good. And So why is God so angry about this? Let's look at that. It's in the remainder of that section of the paragraph. It says, beginning in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So this is telling us why God's so angry about this. Why? Why is he angry about humans suppressing the truth? Well, first, because he's God. He's our maker. He deserves glory and honor and thanks, as it said. But also because people, when they stop worshiping him, they don't stop worshiping. It says... People are always worshiping something. People, it says, have made an exchange. They give the glory that God deserved to people and created things. And the word that the Bible uses to describe this is idolatry. It's worshiping things other than God. And idolatry is the problem behind every sin It's the problem behind every injustice, behind every broken thing on earth. It's people living as though God doesn't exist, and they can either find or make their own truth apart from Him. But God is also angry about this because in the end, idolatry will destroy us. Idolatry will destroy us. It goes on to talk about that later on in this same chapter. You see, God wants good for us, right? We we talked about that last week. God loves us. But if we reject the truth about God, we accept the wrath of God. And this isn't just something that the Bible teaches. It's actually plain to people. It's something that can be observed and can be seen. So much so that even some atheists agree with this in principle. There's a famous uh, writer, and he was also an atheist, named David Foster Wallace in the late 90s, early 2000s, and just a brilliant guy. Here's what he said. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Even this atheist recognizes the truth of what Romans 1 teaches, that if you worship things other than God, it will destroy you. And so God doesn't want that for us. He wants us to believe in him. And so he speaks to us and he makes it plain to us so that we can know the truth about his existence seen in natural revelation, so that we can know his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his, design, his divine nature. God will hold us accountable to believing this truth about him and giving him glory, honor, and thanks. And yet, as we said, we can't fully know him or ourselves unless he gives us supernatural revelation. And so we need to go to the Bible to see the whole truth about God and humanity because he's not just our wise and loving creator. He is also our gracious Redeemer. And so to know Him, we have to turn to the Scriptures, and the primary way we do that is is right here in the Bible. So let's look at that now. Number two, God speaks to us through supernatural revelation. And we're going to turn now to uh, 2 Timothy in chapter 3. I'm actually going to be using a different translation than the Bibles you have, but it's very similar. And 2 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to one of his disciples, someone who was following Jesus as he... Uh, follow Jesus. And that guy's name, as you might have guessed, is Timothy. And, uh, and here is what Paul had to say to him, and ultimately what Paul has for us as he says it to him. You, however, must continue in the things that you have learned and are confident about. You know who taught you. He's alluding to Timothy's mom, Eunice, who raised him up in the Lord, and how from infancy you have known the holy writings which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work so we can't know god and his will apart from supernatural revelation and supernatural if you i mean we might have different ideas of what that word means it's really just an order of existence beyond the visible observable universe so this is what we're talking about is what's invisible it's not observable at least not with natural eyes okay it is observable but it's observable with faith. And faith is the gift that God gives to us, which enables us to see and to believe what He has said to us supernaturally. And so here it tells us that the Bible, the scriptures, are holy. It's said in verse 15. That's a way of saying that it's of God, it's from God, it's special, it's precious, it's actually set apart by God. For his purposes. It also said that the Bible gives us wisdom. That was also in verse 15. For what? It said for salvation and faith. And so we need wisdom in order to have salvation and faith. To actually be delivered from the folly of the world. So that we can place our faith and trust in Jesus. And we're going to come back to that in point number three later. But it also said that the Bible is inspired by God. That was in verse 16. Another translation says it's breathed out by God. So this is God breathing out these words. Meaning, God worked supernaturally through His Holy Spirit to inspire human authors as they wrote. And you know, as I say that, a lot of people feel totally scandalized by this truth. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up. How are we supposed to trust that this is God's Word if people wrote it? And a lot of Christians, they they, they don't like that. They, they either neglect that truth or they dismiss it. Some people talk about God working in concert with human authors. They dismiss that truth and Just try and hold on. Okay, this is just God's Word. That's all that it is. There's this uh, 20th century Anglican priest who has a funny way of describing this error that people make. He says, Some people think that the Bible descended from heaven with black leather covers complete with maps, which I think is just hilarious. This is the way that a lot of people treat the Bible. It's just like they, they, they want to believe that the only way that we can know that this is God's word to us is if it somehow it it, just, it fell from the sky. But the fact is, is that in an incredible, supernatural work, God used human authors carried along by His Holy Spirit to communicate His truth to us. This is amazing. This is amazing. We hear from God directly through these words that people wrote down. And therefore, the Bible, or uh, verse 16, told us that the Bible is useful. How so? Well, it's said it's useful for teaching. That's so we can learn. It's useful for reproof. That means being told when we're wrong. That's correction. It's not just being told we're wrong, but being shown what's right, and training, it said, in righteousness. So like someone would experience either on a sports team or in the military, it's working their bodies so that they're ready for game day or battle. And in the same way, we need these regular rhythms of training our souls in God's Word so that we can live with Him in righteousness. And don't you, don't you want that? Don't you want to learn from God? Don't you want God to tell you when you're wrong? It's actually good. Don't you want God to lovingly correct you and train you in His ways? You see, we need this truth from Him in order to live a capable and equipped life with Him, as verse 17 says. And the good news is is that His Word is trustworthy. It's true. We can rely on it. We can believe it. We can live by it. And some of you guys are like, yeah, you're preaching in the choir. I'm already with you, already 100% on board. You're convinced that that is true. And yet, most of us, if not all of us from time to time, are going to struggle with doubt, won't we? Confession. Yes, all of us, if most of us, if not all of us, will struggle with doubt. And so before we move on to point number three, I want to camp out here for a little bit, okay? Uh, and I'll, I'll just warn you guys, you're used to me preaching for usually shorter amounts of time. This is probably going to be a longer one, okay? So just hang with me. I think that this is super important, and I believe that you will agree with me as, as we get into it. And I want to just talk a little bit more about how trustworthy God's Word is so that we can believe it, and I want to do it beginning with a story. uh, Some of you guys know that I'm in seminary right now, and uh, a couple years ago, I took a Greek class. It's actually how I got to know Nick, our worship director, was we had that Greek class together, and one of the things that they were very deliberate to do in that class is give you a solid understanding of how the Bible came to be you know, how the books were selected, but also the process that it's taken from those original manuscripts that were written to how many copies we've found of those original manuscripts, or sorry, not originals, but copies of the manuscripts, and then also how many differences there are among all of those copies. And they tell this to you, and I, I think it's super helpful, and it was helpful to me because... Honestly, I was living functionally with that kind of Bible-come-down-from-the-sky view of the Bible. Not that I actually believe that. I don't know that anybody actually believes that, but, but that was functionally how I viewed the Bible. I just didn't know about all the difficulties that there are in translating from one language to another. I didn't know that there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of the different books of the New Testament from as early as the second century that scholars used to determine what was most likely original and what might have changed in some of the writings and the copies since it was originally written. And for some people, This is the point of no return in seminary. You guys might be familiar with that. A lot of people, they go to seminary, they learn all this stuff, and they're like, I can't believe this anymore, I'm out. They can't handle the truth of how this book made its way to us. And I joke that as I learned these things, I actually had to become a Christian again. (laughs) Uh, and it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of also true. I, I had to reevaluate. I had to go, okay, in light of all of this new information, do I really believe this? And I, and I had to go and, and listen to the debates, the atheists and the Christians and, and people who are looking at all the data. And saying, this is the facts. This is where this book came from. Can it be trusted? And I wanted to learn and understand, okay, what is everybody saying about this? And in the end, for me and for millions and millions of other Christians, we see a different side to the story than the ways that the atheists and others present it. We look at the exact same evidence and we see a different story, and that is it took a supernatural work of God for these writings to be nurtured and protected for thousands and thousands of years for them to make their way to us. And and we can have confidence because there's so much continuity between all of those different copies and manuscripts from the oldest ones to the newest ones. There the continuity between those copies is unparalleled in all of literature. And so we can trust it. On top of that, there is no central Christian doctrine that's actually under threat from any of those minute little differences that those copies have. And so this is important. This, this is a huge place of going, okay, this we can build upon, our, we can build our faith upon this. But while that is important, it's actually not the biggest reason why I trust the Scriptures. The biggest reason is that the Bible's truthfulness resonates with my soul. It's just true. I can tell. It it makes sense out of everyday life. It makes sense out of the world. There's wisdom here. And even more than all of that, the story of Jesus is the most compelling story that I know. The person of Jesus is the most compelling person that I know. And what I'm talking about here is faith. You see, no matter what facts you go and learn about the Bible, it's going to require you faith in order to believe the Bible. Yes, we should look at the logic and reason and all of those things. They're wonderful, But faith is a supernatural gift from God. And when you have it, you're able to kind of navigate those treacherous waters, the the doubts and the difficulties that are going to naturally occur as you read this book. And you're able to do it with greater strength and with greater confidence. Because, see, you don't come to the Bible with the assumption that it's false. Like, oh, this thing is false. I guess I'll have to figure out if somehow I can believe it. You also don't come to the Bible neutrally when you have faith. You don't, you don't kind of test it every time you read it to see if it can, uh, I guess this seems a little trustworthy this time. No, you come to it submitting yourself to its truth, just like you submit yourself to Jesus. And that takes work. It takes a lot of work. Because the Bible can be really hard to understand. Amen? It can be super hard to understand. Because this is a book that was written thousands of years ago by people who were in a completely different culture than we are, in a completely different place than we are. And so the journey from there to here takes work. And on top of that, not all truth is the same. And Here's what, here's what I mean. There's different literary styles in the Bible. There's poetry, there's narrative, there's discourse, all these things. And each of them teaches truth in a different way. I'll give you an example. The Psalms, uh, in the Psalms, God is speaking and He says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. That's true. Does God own exactly what? the cattle that are on exactly 1,000 hills? No, that's not the kind of truth that that is. Another example, did you guys all, when you came in here, did you greet each other with a holy kiss? I hope so, because that's what the Bible commands us to do when we come together, right? And that's a command, and it's true. But it's a harder work to take what the Bible says and to understand how to interpret and to apply these things to our lives. We can't always just take things simply at face value. It's, it's, a, it's a process. And I want to camp out here now on what I think is probably the most important example of what I'm talking about. Most important example, at least in our current day, and that is the creation account in Genesis. Okay, There are a wide range of views within orthodox Christianity. People who say this is God's word and it's, I'm under its authority people who look at that and they read that passage of God's creation and they interpret it differently. There's variation in understanding. Everybody says that God is our creator and we know that for a fact. That's that's where there's a lot of unity. But then there's also a lot of range. And you may have heard any variety of interpretation of that passage. And maybe you're in school and you're learning about what science says about the creation of the world. And you go, okay, well, this must be true, right? And then you, you learn what the Bible says about the history of the world, the creation of the world, and you go, these things can't be reconciled. The science says this. The Bible says this. Guess I'm going to have to believe science. But the wise and responsible Bible reader has to ask, what exactly does the Bible teach? And is it actually in conflict with science? Some of you guys are familiar with R.C. Sproul, who's a um, form theologian. He's passed now more recently. But I think he's really helpful here on this topic, and and he addresses the issue by talking about a common hot-button Christian debate, and that is the, the debate of the age of the earth. Here's what he says. When people ask me how old the earth is, I tell them I don't know. Praise God. Can can you just thank God for that? How many people should be saying I don't know when they say a whole list of other things? The Bible does not give us a date of creation. I believe firmly that all truth is God's truth. And God has given not only revelation in sacred scripture, that's supernatural revelation, but also in nature, that's natural revelation. Historically, the church has been corrected by students of natural revelation. Now, those are scientists. Whoa, what are you talking about, R.C. Sproul? You're saying the church has been corrected by scientists? He's talking about how the church had to take a second look and see if our reading of Genesis unnecessarily imposes a certain view onto the text rather than letting the text speak for itself and he goes on to give the example of how in the 16th century Copernicus and others they were discovering uh, this scientific proof that the sun was at the center of our solar system and what did christians do they called them heretics they cast them out of the church and they rejected the truth that these scientists were telling them because they were taught that the bible says that the earth is at the center of the universe does it actually say that? No. No. And, and I, I could probably prove that to you by saying that no Christian on earth is trying to argue for geocentricity. Right? I don't know anybody who's saying that. And we understand now that the church had misinterpreted the Bible regarding the ordering of the solar system. And we can thank those scientists for correcting our misunderstanding. The point is is that we can learn from scientists. The Bible is not a science book. What is the Bible useful for? What did it say in 2 Timothy 3? It said, did it say that the Bible is useful for science? No. The Bible is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And friends, science can be Wonderful. It can help give us a greater understanding of how God has ordered things, how his wisdom is seen through the creation that he has made. We can see, as we said, his divine attributes, his eternal power. But at the same time, science is not God breathed, it's not God inspired. Creation, nature, is God breathed and God inspired. Science is not. And so all of these things have to be tested. Sproul, R.C. Sproul is helpful here again. He says, fallible human beings interpret infallible natural revelation and infallible human beings interpret infallible supernatural revelation. Okay, what's he saying? He uses all these big words because he's a theologian, right? He's saying that human beings will misinterpret what we see in nature. So we'll make mistakes in science. And he's saying that human beings will misinterpret what we see in Scripture. We'll make mistakes as we try to understand the Bible. But our misinterpretation doesn't mean that the truth that God is speaking is any less trustworthy. And so the responsible, wise Bible reader, whether you're a Christian or not, you've got to evaluate, is there a conflict with what the Bible teaches And what science teaches. And frankly, most of the time there's not. Sometimes there is. For example, when it comes to origins or morality, we've got to always say, this is the book where I find out who created all things, right? I don't simply look to science to tell me this is the book where i learn about him about his character about his will this is where i learn about the purpose of human history and redemption this is the book where i find out how he wants me to live this book is not where i try to find out about the age of the earth or the complexities of molecular biology it just isn't because the bible teaches me everything sufficiently to live with god But it doesn't teach me everything. And so don't dismiss the Bible or Christianity because it doesn't tell you how and why God killed the dinosaurs, for example, okay? But do look to the Bible for the truth that it actually means to reveal. Go to the Bible to supernaturally hear from God. And if you do, you will see... That his supreme supernatural revelation of himself is in the person of Jesus. That's number three. God speaks to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate supernatural revelation. If you're new to the Bible, you're not a Christian or you're a new Christian, you just maybe haven't studied Christianity or the Bible much, this is your entry point. Begin with Jesus. Don't go to the Old Testament and try and memorize all the sacrificial laws or something like that. Go to the Gospels. Go to Jesus because in him the rest of the story makes sense. Sure you're going to have other questions as you read Jesus. You're going to have questions that need to be answered. But begin with Him, because without Him, there's really no point. Hebrews chapter 1 says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Jesus Himself is God's Word. He is the supernatural revelation of God. Supernatural because He's God in human form. And part of the way through John's gospel, we're told this fascinating story about Jesus. He's been going out through the region, healing people, working miracles left and right. There's this huge crowd that's growing and growing day by day, and they're following him around this region of Galilee, which is a a lake in northern Israel. And everyone who's with him there, they're not only awestruck and kind of wanting to see what's going to happen next, but many of them are probably also hoping that they're going to get healed themselves. And so they're following him and following him. They're, They're hanging with Jesus. And as Jesus is teaching this is going on for days, he's also concerned about the fact that everybody that's there with him needs to eat, right? And though they only have access to five barley loaves, and two fish, somehow, miraculously, they're able to feed all 5,000 people who were there, which almost for sure was probably more like 10,000 people, because if you include women and children, that's the number that you would end up at. And you can imagine that once all these people who had eaten and they filled their bellies, once they were full, they must have stood back and gone, Wow. They must have their jaw on the ground. What just happened? Who is this Jesus that he can work these kinds of miracles? How can I hang around with him all the time? I mean, I've got never-ending supply of food. I've got all my needs taken care of, right? Everybody's thinking this, and the Bible tells us that they come together, and they're, they're like, what do we got to do? We got to take him by force and make him our new king, because no one had ever seen a king like this, that's not just powerful and glorious, but also gracious and kind. And you would think that at this point, Jesus would capitalize on this momentum, that he'd be like, great, we've got the crowd, you know, I've started my 10,000-person my ministry in a matter of months, and Jesus, I mean, he has come down from heaven to earth in a sense, to gather crowds, to, to establish his kingdom. So obviously he should want to get this thing going, right? He should try and take advantage of this. This is now the time for an insurrection, right? Wrong. Jesus bails. <laughs> Almost everything Jesus does is, is different than what you're going to guess he's going to do. And he bails, and and he first he withdraws to the mountainside, and we can presume that he went there to pray and just kind of be with the Father and to recharge. And then he crosses the water to get even further away from the crowds, but they keep following him. They get in their boats, and they head across, and they find him on the other side, and they seem a bit perturbed. They're like, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you leaving us? And Jesus corrects them, and he says, you don't want me. You just want bread. You don't want to follow me. You just want the goodies that I give to you. And he tries to get them to see that the miracle of him feeding them was pointing to something far more important than just bread. Supposed to draw their attention to him as the bread of life. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The kind of sustenance that we get from food is meant to help us see our deeper need for spiritual food, for supernatural food, for eternal food, for eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying, which is found only through believing in him. But the crowds, they didn't like what what he was saying, of course, right? They began to grumble and say things like, hold hold up, hold up, we know this guy. He, He grew up right around here. He's just a normal guy. We know his parents, Joseph and Mary, Why is he saying, how can he even say that he gives life and he's come down from heaven and all these things? They just start doubting. They didn't believe him. And so Jesus does, again, what he often does, and he presses in even harder (laughs) And he takes the same words that he just said, and he basically says the exact same thing, but only with a more offensive and graphic metaphor. <laughs> he says, he tells him, he says, you'll live forever if you feast on my flesh and drink my blood. And for you guys who are Christians, you essentially practice this every week as we receive communion, but you might be able to remember a time where you heard those words and they sounded really strange to you, right? For those of you who aren't Christians, you might be hearing it a little bit like those who were there, those crowds that were around Jesus. Like, what is he, starting like a cannibalistic cult or something? What is this about? Drink his blood? Eat his body? And so what did the people do? What did the crowds do? It said when many of his disciples heard it, they said, "This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it?" And after many of his disciples, after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Not everyone who followed Jesus followed him to the end. Some of his disciples were only there because of what Jesus did for them. They wanted those those goodies. When the teaching got hard, they didn't believe, they left. And Jesus knew that it wasn't true discipleship if they came to Him on their terms and for their ends. And so He challenges them and He draws a line. And he tells them how hard it is to go all the way, to follow him all the way. But others, like Peter here, they did believe. Here's here's what it says. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Some disciples stopped believing and they left, but others saw something incredible and attractive in Jesus. They saw that there was nowhere else to go. There was no other Messiah. There was no other Savior. There was no other King. There was no other place where eternal life could be found. And these disciples followed to the end. Many of them even followed to their own death. And you see, this is the call of Jesus' disciples, to believe in Him. To believe in Him as the person who reveals truth to us, who reveals to us the true nature of God, and to believe in Him as the very Word of God. And so the big idea is God has spoken to us, so we believe God's truth and we share God's truth with others. We believe it. We see it with faith. We live under the authority of His Word, and we get to enjoy all of its benefits, the wisdom and its usefulness. But then we don't want to just hold on to that for ourselves. We want to share it. We want to share it by telling other people, by studying God's Word with them, by sharing it with our, our spouse or our family, our friends, our roommates, our coworkers. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. You didn't have to do that. You are so gracious and kind to show us, to allow your creation to speak up about who you are. And we thank you, God, that you've gone beyond that, that you have created a people set apart for yourself, redeemed from slavery to sin and death, and brought into your company. And you've shown us the pathway to that redemption through your word. So we thank you for speaking to us so clearly in Scripture. And God, we thank you most of all for sending to us Jesus to speak to us, to show us what you are truly like. Jesus, we thank you for your words, your ministry. We thank you for your presence through your Holy Spirit as we get to enjoy you today. And we pray that we would be people whose faith increases, people who believe more and more, but not just so that we can believe, but so that others can know you. And so, God, I pray right now for those in the room today who don't know you, that they would meet you, that they would be given eyes to see and the gift of faith, to see Jesus for who he is, the revelation of God. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.